So welcome back to another episode of Saft Podcast and Steven welcome back uh, yes thank you for so so we just uh, heads up we just working out different schedules and things that fall into place so we decided to see if for Steven to get back on before until uh, Piyush gets his things sorted yeah. so good to have you back man thank um, you man we are continuing with our kalam dialogue and all that's yes, happening sir. so uh, what what do you take so far on what we've been doing with the kalam because we've been going very slow like you said we we going we been going bite sized so what's your general take on what we've done so far it's very nice <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> a man a man of sussing toward <laughs> yeah well uh, the kalam cosmological argument uh, the the power in it is its simplicity right just yeah. simply this is what we had discussed on the episode that we were first on right um where you know you literally have uh, two premises and then one conclusion yes and uh, Yes everyone please pay attention you know because I'm very proud of myself for knowing this so the first premise oh, imagine if i get it wrong also after <laughs> saying all of this i'll be even worse but anyway uh premise one is everything that begins to exist has a cause uh the uni- universe began to exist so hence the universe has a cause right and because of the simplicity of all of this it's very easy for us to um go and verify each one and this is a deductive argument yes. that we're making right yes see so proud of myself okay <laughs> um so uh, anyway so the 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 the, the, the what is it the 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 unique pro- yeah okay yeah yeah unique, unique property or the, the usp very compelling property yeah. that's what I mean. oh, we can say usp the unique selling point yeah <laughs> usp yes uh, business terminology let's <laughs> use that <laughs> um yeah the unique selling point of the kalam cosmological is uh, argument is that you have to attack those base arguments that we are first making the first mm. pre- first and second premises and that is the only way that you can disprove yeah the universe began uh, the the universe had a cause right that and also with with with, with its simplicity of presentation it also has um this background of research that has gone into it yeah so with the first premise now we'll be looking at um uh, with uh, the arguments that we can put up in defense of the first premise there are three arguments for the first premise and when we come to the second premise of that the universe began to exist right we have like you mentioned philosophical and then scientific arguments as well so it caters to a uh, somewhat of a broad uh, spectrum of audience the people who may have a philosophical uh, inclination to them you can appeal with that but the people who have who are more easily convinced or who fall back more on scientific data we can present the scientific evidence for the being of the universe and so that is like i said it makes very versatile it's very versatile it makes it very unique um and so in in the last episode what we were doing is we just began exploring and then um, in in the last episode with Piyush on we were talking about the difference between possibility probability and plausibility because when we were talking you immediately asked me about yeah. what's the difference and I was thinking on the foot and I I I realized that I didn't give a proper explanation to differentiate it so it will be helpful to the audience because when I first read about it I thought well they were interchangeable but yeah. there is very specific difference on when you say what Mm. like you don't use in the word probable whenever and whenever you feel like you yeah. use it in a very specific context and so when you are reading through materials right the the intent of the natural theology series is to slowly help you to understand these broad deep arguments and also to help you to do your own learning so you don't need you need not always fall back on podcast and other other stuff to learn on your own you can pick up uh, maybe a, a scholarly article or a book and navigate through it at your own pace 
And so what we want to do is like these casual discussions where you are the fly on the wall and you are picking up on these words that we're breaking down. So when you get to your own learning phase, you can handle that on your own. You can progress on your own. And uh, that's how it's always going to be. You, we can't always depend on someone else to always give us answers. Whenever I take sessions also, I point out the fact at the end that, okay, here are the resources that you can go and learn on your own. We get questions on our social media account asking answers to stuff. And we are always there to help. But we want each person who are in that capacity to be able to do what we are also doing. We are not experts at this. We are lay people who are learning on our own, figuring out things on our own, um, correcting ourselves. So we all want you to be on that journey with us. So, yeah, so that's what we've been touching over um, in the last episode. So I am looking to get into sort of like the more bulk of the KCA with this episode. Okay, let's do it, let's do it. Yeah, um, so what we're going to do in this is we're going to look at um, the first premise, which says... Oh, yes, uh, yeah, everything that began to exist had a, has a cause. Yeah. Don't put me on the spot <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, uh, so what we're going to look at is what are the three arguments that are put up in defense of uh, premise one. Mm. So... Uh, so what do you what do you make of the premise like when you hear it what are what are the thoughts coming to your mind the first thing that comes into my mind when i hear that phrase is empirical evidence or, mm. or s- stuff that i see right mm. everything that i see uh, that began uh, to exist mm. definitely had a cause it came from something it didn't pop into existence from nothing right right um so this is this is something that you can evidently see in yeah. the world around us mm. uh, nothing that we can clearly see had no cause mm-hmm. that began to exist. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing about this premise, like you said, right, it's something that we can sort of, um, we'll use the term intuitively know. Mm. Like when we yeah. hear, we know it intuitively and we look at that a bit later. Um, and which is why it is very surprising to note that there were philosophers who strongly opposed premise one. Now this can be said as sort of like a drawback of philosophy as well that you get too much into the weeds of the dialogue but I think that there is also great strength in maybe that maybe into like too much into the semantics of the yes uh, right right like when you say uh, like the distinction between the field of epistemology and ontology mm. you may be familiar with this but uh, ontology is the study of existence right what is that that is a question of ontology right now let's say you understand whatever that is you understand that it is A epistemology is a study of our how we come to know about knowledge. Right? So then you are, okay, how did you come to know that it is A? Now for us, when we realize what is A, we just, you know, we move on, we, okay, I've learned this is, this is so and so and we move on. But then it's in the field of philosophy that you get in the nuance, okay, how did you come to know that this is so and so? So there is, yeah, so, so there is great merit in that, there is great strength in that because every field has a philosophy of its own. Now we have mentioned about this um, when we had, uh, if I recall, um, can't samples on when we're talking about philosophy or science and when we had Dr. Craig on we were talking about philosophy and theology and um, so in my conversation with Paul Gould I think we mentioned this um, maybe in one of our prior episodes also where there is there is philosophy undergirding almost every field so Paul Gould who is uh, who is overseeing the philosophy program at Palm Beach Atlantic University he said that um, there is philosophy of literature right? because it is also just like economics biology science it is also a field that also has undergoing assumptions on how you progress through navigating Shakespeare's writing and so on and so forth. So, so like I said, that is a great strength of philosophy. But then also it, it sort of at some point makes us wonder, 
is it worth getting into all of this like you said is it right. worth getting uh, into uh, the semantics hmm. yeah but but then one other thing also i just wanted to ask like very quickly by philosophy of literature what i am understanding in my mind is what literature in general when we are studying literature what hmm. we are under, trying to understand is the what and the how what philosophy goes into is the why um Or so it so like it that? was it, it was so it was the very first time that i came to know that literature had a philosophy of literature discipline mm. so it is i am also as new to it as mm. you are uh but i think what the knowing that economics has a philosophy behind it like this philosophy of economics and recently i started my study into um a brilliant economist daniel hausman's book uh, philosophy of economics and anthology so in that the focus on that is you have when you are starting to study about the choices of human behavior and all of that stuff in economics you're going to have certain assumptions at the ground now why do you have those assumptions how do you know that those assumptions are valid what are the ways that you can advance on that assumptions and it's once those assumptions are set that you make the next step forward so uh, the father of economics adam smith he was a moral philosopher um david hume Uh, was a moral philosopher who had voice in economics john stuart mills was a political economist and was a philosopher um and so all of this is that this was in the early stage right now you don't see philosophy of economics as a, as a dominant field right now we have more more moved more towards um what is called, sometimes referred to as engineering economics right where you have econometrics and statistics are all coming together and you have behavioral, behavioral economics also moving towards the side of economics and psychology and all of that but they were, when they were initially starting off they had to come to terms of when we say the market what do we mean by the market when i say choices okay what exactly how do we identify what constitutes a choice and what doesn't constitute a choice when i'm talking about human behavior are humans going to behave in way that is going to be driven by self interest or are they going to behave in ways that is driven by uh, altruistic choices okay and this is the philosophy this is the philosophy part. so it's once these areas were laid on that adam smith and others could progress forward So even now when economics is undergoing revision through fields like behavioral economics and new institutional economics there's a lot that philosophers are coming and doing and giving the groundwork for it so that someone from another field like statistics can come in and apply mathematics and as such to it um in the same way literature also has it has got to have something of that sort like when you come into terms with the the understanding of how um you come to terms with whatever shakespeare wrote in the context of what was written at that time so what what framework do you construct to make sure that you are in overshooting the limits or what framework do you construct to make sure that you are in putting words into what shakespeare was trying to do else you may like how we differentiate between exegesis and eisegesis of biblical hermeneutics okay yeah let's yeah like exegesis is when you are letting simply put you're letting the text speak for itself eisegesis is when you're reading into the text so exegesis is what we want to do we want the text to speak for itself eisegesis it was is when we are reading into the text mm-hmm. so when you're trying to understand what shakespeare was trying to write you will also need to make this differences in methodology like what till what distance can you go with this method at what point is that going to be not um, a viable methodology to understand what shakespeare is doing you know we're going off tangents but uh, so that is what would be i think that's what is going to be happening in the field of philosophy of literature because every field has to have these principle frameworks built up so that people can correspond and take the step forward and this is something that has been realized way back if i recall right uh, in german philosophical and uh, um, scientific setting where it's called there's a term used to refer to is called weltanschauung um okay. it reminds of dwight saying perfect slang um, okay. in the office 
So Weltanschauung is a terminology that is used to refer to the, um, I'm just going to put it out very brutally and simply, it just refers to the theoretical paradigm within which you are operating. Right? Whoa. So it means what are the theories that you are holding on to which gives you a box to operate within. Okay. Right? So when you are doing some sort of a research, right, there you will hold, for example, if, if in, when it comes to quantum mechanics, you have different forms of interpretation of how quantum mechanics happens. You have deterministic model, indeterministic model, Copenhagen mm. interpretation, so on and so forth. So you will be operating within a specific set of theoretical setups that is going to guide the way you're going to operate. Now, another person who may not hold on to this one particular form of interpretation of quantum mechanics is going to have a different paradigm. So the idea was that, the initial thought was that, or maybe scientists all have different boxes of their own that they can't communicate to each other. But then that has gone revision and changes and so on and so forth. Um, so in setting up this Weltanschauung to operate, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that word. Weltanschauung. Uh, it's S-C-H-A-U-N-G, something like that. So... Oh. so um, so every field has those set of theoretical frameworks within which you're going to operate. Mm. Um, just like science has a philosophy of science, right? right. Uh, biology has a philosophy of biology. We have people like Paul Nelson and others. So who are the philosophy sets up those boundaries. Boundaries to navigate those questions that operate. that field necessarily can't. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So that's, what is that set up for KCA? Um, so, with, so we were talking about how uh, philosophers were getting in too much into the weeds of it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and like I said, it is it is getting into that semantics a bit further than what we may necessarily like okay. that helps us to talk about things that we couldn't normally do with our normal language. Okay. Right? Because, because, for example, um, so what? For, so J.L. Mackey comes up and says, so this is a good place to start. So, uh, so J.L. Mackey is a atheist philosopher and he comes and says, okay, you're saying the premise one is everything that begins to exist has a cause. Mm. So he comes up and he cites David Hume, like I mentioned before, moral mm. philosopher, economist, politi political commentator, all of that stuff. Uh, he comes up and says, um, you know, we can certainly conceive, right? Draw mm. up in our mind, imagine, that was different words. We can conceive in our mind um, an uncaused beginning to be of an object. So the object is it is about to begin, okay. but it is uncaused. How does that work? Yeah, that is that is the question. How does that work? But JL Mackey is saying that can you conceive in your mind? Like right now, right now, can you imagine uh, Michael Scott popping in the corner of the room? Like, no. can you imagine that? No, I, I I'm not mean, asking. I'm not asking okay. you to, can you bring actually him to life. No, I'm asking can you imagine that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can imagine that. Right? All it has to do is we have our imagination of how popping into effect yeah. uh, comes to take place. Or maybe you can have a like a short sort of like translucent to opaque shift yeah, effect. That, and then you see but all of this is derived from, you know, our experience of what is yeah. it, CGI in film. Yes, all of that. Right. But JL Mackey says that can you conceive of something of that sort? Yeah. And he then goes on to say, well, if that is the case, then you have to show me that that can't really happen. But the issue is like right, like now as we explore it, we all figure out just because you can conceive something to happen doesn't mean it, it will really happen. Yeah, but then don't ma they make the same arguments for the teapot uh, argument as well and the, the spaghetti monster just because you can't see it. it but now he's using it no, in the no, opposite it, it, it's not It's not seeing. So this, this is what I said. Right now, you're you're trying to figure out what JL Mackey is trying to say, right? Yeah. This is this is the part of philosophy. Philosophy gets into semantics. Philosophy gets into the into the wheel. So what JL Mackey is saying is that, 
I can conceive that something can begin to exist uncaused. Okay. okay. Now, what does it mean to conceive? Is that I can draw, simply put, I can draw up in my mind. I can imagine. Yes. So what he's saying is that, okay, I can conceive that something can come into being from nothing. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, well, now you have to show me that this is truly impossible. Okay. So the, the, the counter object that you asked, which you said out right in the beginning, like how does that work? Yeah. Right? The thing is, I can conceive Dora the Explorer popping in this room. Yeah. You can conceive Santa Claus popping in this room. Yeah. But that gives us no rational justification to say that that can actually happen or that they are real. Yeah. Now the counter that we can raise is that if if you go and say something as absurd as that. This is a very absurd thing for a for a brilliant philosopher to say. The counter is that I can conceive that the resurrection actually happened. Yeah, that's what you can make a bunch. You can make you can make it up for anything. Yeah, that's why I mentioned the infinitesimal teapot because they use that as an argument to kind of disprove what we try to explain. Like, like how exactly? Like as in? So, um, the infinitesimal, the the incredibly tiny teapot argument. Have you heard of that? Where um, there is a very very small teapot that is rotate uh, that is uh, revolving around the earth. Yeah. So we can say that that actually exists. Hmm. I think I'm butchering it. I have a string yeah, of thought that I'm trying. Burton to Russell's to. teapot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Burton Russell's uh, 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 teapot. And essentially, yeah. what they're trying to do is like we can say that that also exists, but we can't really prove that. That kind of goes against to what he's saying. I don't know. Um, no. So Burton Russell's teapot. and uh, the flying spaghetti monster i think that carl sagan put out the idea is that saying what is the difference between um no spaghetti monster okay so he, okay i have to explain what this is yeah, yeah. right so burton russell is an atheist philosopher carl sagan is a famous cosmologist both atheists so they both came up with their own examples to try and counter um theistic presentation and i think this was this sort of resembles what anthony flew said death by a thousand qualifications so i'll so i'll list out this really quickly uh, a teapot is flying in space orbiting the earth it's super small that you can't use a telescope to find it but it is there right that's the hypothesis now carl sagan's flying spaghetti monster there is a a monster in my garage or some people vary is that there is a fire breathing dragon in my garage it's invisible it has it is cold blooded so you can't use infrared or something of that sort the fire breathes is of a specific kind so you can't use infrared um you can't put dust on the floor to see its footprint because it's flying just 2 cm away from the higher from the ground and all that stuff so they ask with all of these stuff they, they the question is what is the difference between a dragon or a flying spaghetti monster whatever that is um what is the difference between something that you can't test identify figure out and no flying spaghetti monster mm. right and this th- this is why i said it resembles and what is that use uh, what is that being used to disprove so it's saying that when you say can you see god well we say no you can't see god can you touch god well you can't touch god so they take along that line and they say okay what is the difference between a god whom you can't see touch smell taste and no god right so it is along that line of pure empiricism where knowledge can come only through the sensory experience okay so that was a stream of thought that was there in um, 1920s uh, it came up with the vienna circle and then it sort of died out because the people who propounded it themselves i think around 50 years later aj ayer if i recall right he came back and said no it's this is this is a blunder right the idea the logical empiricism idea is that you can only have knowledge through your sensory experience mm-hmm. like our five senses whatever you can know through the five senses are the only things that you can really know right right um so that was the point now what jl mackey is saying is that this is, this is a philosophical take on it 
Kyle Mack is whole point is this. He is like I said it's an absurd thing to say. You can just conceive. conceive it. Then he's saying okay now it's up it to you. Yes, it's up to you to show me that it really is impossible. The things like I said one thing is just because you conceive doesn't mean that is really the case. Okay. That thing is you can twist it on its head and show that well I can conceive this to happen that's to happen and I can conceive that there exists the greatest conceivable being who is the uncaused cause of the universe. Like what is stopping me from conceiving it? I can conceive that stuff. Yeah. So I can conceive that the resurrection happened. Yeah. I can conceive that Jesus exercised demons. I can conceive that Jesus uh healed the lame. So I can conceive anything and everything. So right. Jael Mackey's point sort of is helps us more. Yeah, it's like shooting himself in the foot. Yeah. Um so that is the first objection that Jael Mackey put forward and and we are getting close close to our time. And one thing note is that he interestingly refers to Hume, to David Hume. Mm. Right? And uh So like I said David Hume was a huge proponent of this empiricism idea that you had to use only your sensory experience to know and he oh, so was it actually does tie up to what I said in a sense not really um not specifically <laughs> I think I think it may be interconnected right because yeah. these these are all uh, within the atheistic world view mm. so when Bertrand Russell and Carl Sagan come and say they are working within the weltanschauung of atheism mm. within the theoretical paradigm of atheism right so their ideas and exams are going to be in line with what the is whole already sensory experience the, sort of it is going to be in line with the whole theoretical understanding of atheism right and so empiricism is a key thing they still hold on to that you can use only science to say you can use only science to know that is a different that is a modified way of empiricism right okay. because you don't use science to figure out what love is mm. you use science to figure out what the chemicals are operating in your body and they say you can use only science to know truth right. so that is a modified take on empiricism and so the interesting part with david hume is that um David Hume when he wrote a letter to in in 1720 or something uh, anyway in the 18th century he wrote a, wrote a letter and he said that he has never said something as absurd as that something could come without a cause mm. he said that i never i have never asserted so absurd a proposition that anything may arise without a cause and then he went on to clarify saying i know that this is false that something can come without a cause i know that it is false uh not from intuition or demonstration but from another effect and he goes on with the writing so the point is that david hume himself whom jail mackey quotes yes, came and said that the premise one basically he came and said that premise one of the kalam is true <laughs> it's quite absurd i would dif- differ with you on how i know it is true on what is the means or mm. mechanism i know it is true but i agree with with the theist basically i'm an atheist philosopher <laughs> one of the person who is quoted most or in in uh, objection to the miracles right. he said that miracles are um, completely impossible improbable you can never prove a miracle but he basically came up and said i agree with the thesis on the kalam that okay. you know something cannot come from nothing um and so that is the first part of it we want to cover a bit more of of that uh, but we hope that what we have touched on sort of enlightened you in a in a broader sense and uh, one thing that i also want to note is that now this is very clear to you we've discussed within this and we have discussed this in the podcast also that uh in terms of the content for the national theology series we are drawing heavily on dr william lane craig's book reasonable faith because we don't have to reinvent the wheel when we're doing this when we're going through the content what we want to do is we want to touch on the key parts that you get to um learn and then use it in your evangelism and conversations so we will we will have to pick and choose between what will objection to respond to um so now jail macky um, brings up a whole string of objections and these are responded by philosophers but if you get to into it then it starts going a bit over our head 
right um, it takes time for us to understand and when you're listening it also takes time for us to understand and then you start to figure am i ever going to use this in a conversation which is one of the reason that i am not really inclined to talk about the ontological argument mm. it's a brilliant philosophical argument um, in fact i'm uh, i was just pondering and seeing that it has ramification even in economics wow but the thing is it gets too philosophical mm. that you for a moment you stop and ask which guy i know is ever going to come up and pick up a conversation on the ontological argument but at the same time you can learn more about other arguments that are going to be much more relevant for you to use and other arguments that you can really comprehend really i think the one that's most uh, relatable is the teleological argument or the and the moral argument. argument yeah both those both easily relatable to us so we is going to we are going to look into that optimization of all of that and what to respond to within the series and all of that but i just wanted to be clear that this is the content that we're drawing on because this is uh, a legitimate well resourced work from an experienced academic sharp philosopher and that is what we're presenting to you um, for your edification and for your knowledge so yeah thank you for sticking out and uh, we'll pick up the rest of the stuff in the next episode let's all do right. it all right see you thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoy saft podcast do consider rating us on apple podcasts or podchaser you can connect with us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube and know more about us at www.saftapologetics.com